Today on Abounding Grace from Pastor Ed Taylor. You see, the emphasis in the scriptures is not what I do for God, but what he has done for me. It doesn't mean that we don't do for God. We do. We love God. We serve him, motivated by love and joy and the assurance of our salvation, the security that we have in Jesus Christ. But a mistake happens when we start to emphasize what we do for God. And then we become very, well, I guess we could call it legalistic in our approach to God. And we minimize this omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful, everywhere at once, omniscient, all-knowing, all-love, all-holiness, all-righteousness, well, into a God of our own making. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my We'd like to be promise keepers, but more often than not, we're promise breakers. While we frequently break our promises, there is one who never does. He is always faithful. Of course, I'm referring to God, our faithful promise giver and keeper. And today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor will set out to describe our Lord as the promise giver. He'll utilize Romans 4 to do so. Let's head there now. Promises. Sometimes we refer to them as commitments. The Bible uses the word promise. The Bible also uses the word covenant. Listen to how Webster defines a promise. A promise is a declaration that one will do or refrain from doing something specified. Or he also defines it as a legally binding declaration that gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect or to claim the performance. In the original language, the word promise is translated or really is defined as to announce. In the original language, it's a legal term that declares a summons or a promise to do or give something. And you know, in the Bible, the word promise is almost always used to declare and to point us to God, the promise giver. Some 50 times the word is used to point out the powerful, wonderful God, the reliable God who promises to man. And I think sometimes we get it the other way around. And instead of emphasizing the great promise giver, it's easy to emphasize us as promise keepers. I don't like that emphasis because I'm not all that good at keeping promises to God. As a matter of fact, I try to stay away from that. Do you? Oh, God, if you do this, I will do that. But have you noticed how weak your flesh is? Oh, God, I'm going to fast for five days. And then you wake up Monday, it changes into five minutes, and you know, it's over. (laughs) But God, he always keeps his promises. The emphasis in the Bible is not on us as humans keeping promises, but rather God's ability to give his promises. You know why? A promise is only as good as the one giving it. A promise is only as good as the one that's able to deliver. We with our mouths can promise anything. We can say everything. But really, how many of us have the ability to follow up with everything that we promise? We need to be careful. I'll do this for you, but then something comes up and you can't do it. I'll be there for you at 12 o'clock, but some unforeseen circumstance happens and you're not there at 12 o'clock, you're not there at 5 o'clock, you're not even there that week. But you made the promise. 
Things happen in our lives. For sure I'll do this for you. I can do that, but really not be able to do it. But when God, when he promises, he delivers. You know how often he delivers? Every single time. To the point where the Bible teaches us that even when we are faithless, without faith, God, he remains faithful. Listen, you can jot it down in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jot this down, Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Now might be a time for you to get out your pens, because we're going to take a lot of notes here. I'm going to give a lot of points that you want to jot down. Jot it down, Genesis 18, 14. Some will turn to, some will just jot down. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the answer to that? No. No. Abraham now. Remember the focus in chapter 4 is Abraham. And how is he saved? How was Abraham saved? Well, the question comes up, was he saved by his works? No, we already learned that in the beginning of chapter 4. Was he saved by some religious act like circumcision? No. Today we ask the question, was he saved by the law? The question will be answered, no. Look at verse 13, Romans chapter 4. For the promise, and you might just want to mark the words promises. They're used a lot in this section. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. You might want to circle that word. So that if the promise might be sure, you might want to circle that word, to all the seed. You might want to circle, no, I'm just kidding. Not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Verse 18. Who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be verse 19 not being weak in faith he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he God had promised he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness verse 23 Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Think about it for a second. Abraham, without the law, without the scriptures, without a synagogue, without a church, without instruction, he believed God. He had a personal relationship with God himself, the promise giver. The promises of God were held onto and lived out in Abraham's life without any of the things that you and I have today. And my question has always been, how? How is that possible for a man to trust God to the point where everything around him would say no, but in his heart of hearts by relationship said yes? You know why? Because I'm always faced with my unbelief, and I'm always faced with my wavering, and I'm always faced with my wondering, and I'm always faced with, what about this? And, you know, God, this must be too hard for you. But faith... You know how faith is built up? Flip over to Romans chapter 10. We'll see this as we study through Romans, but I want to read it for you today. You know, some people believe faith is built up by some song and dance. Woo-hoo-hoo, we 
want more faith. We want more faith. Give us more faith. Some people believe you. some mystical thing happens. As you pray a little prayer before you go to bed. Lord, give me faith. You go to lay me down to sleep. You go to sleep. You wake up and you're a great man or woman of faith. That's not how it happens, gang. Listen, let's, let's draw, draw your attention to verse 8 of Romans chapter 10. How do you have faith in that promise giver? I mean, where does it come from? Well, verse 8, chapter 10. What does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You might be a whoever in this place today. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? And so, verse 17, then, so then, faith comes by hearing. And what does your Bible say? Hearing by, hearing by the word of God. You are being built up in your faith right now. As the word of God is in, it makes sense, doesn't it? Of how much their effort is spent trying to undermine your faith and your belief. To try to get your eyes off of God and his sufficiency and on yourself and your own insufficiencies. Very easy. And that's the attack constantly to undermine, well, to undermine who really who we believe God is. If God has given these promises in Romans chapter 4, then who does the Bible say God is? We know that Abraham was a friend of God. We know that you and I are called friend of God. So who exactly are you friends with? Who is our God? We'll jot it down. Number one, we learned some wonderful things about God. Number one, he's omnipotent. That's a big word. It simply means all-powerful. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Jot it down, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Jeremiah cries out, Oh, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. That's your God in mind. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. You know what that means? That means he never loses power. He never gains power. He's it. He has all the power that's necessary, all the power that exists. He is always all-powerful with all the power there is to have. Awesome. That's our God. Number two, he's not only omnipotent, he's omniscient. Omniscient. That's a fancy word that means all-knowing. Your God, my God, he's all-knowing. Listen, Psalm 147, 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. There isn't one thing that God doesn't know. He's not taken surprised by anything. He learns nothing. He has it all. Nothing's new to him. Surprised by nothing. God knows all about you and everything there is to know. God knows. Number three, he's omnipresent. 
Again, a word that means that God is everywhere all at once. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God and he himself fills the heavens and the earth. There isn't a single place where you will not find God. He is everywhere, all at the same time, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent. I mean, that's a powerful God. And when you begin to look at God, he is powerful and awesome and majestic and worthy of all of our praise and adoration and our obedience. But what about his character? That sounds like a God that is far away, too far to touch, too far to communicate with, too far, too high, too lofty. God is God and I am not. But what about his character? Number four, where the Bible tells us he is love. He's love. That's his character. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's love, not just sometimes, but all the time. You know, God doesn't love you just when you're lovable. You come to prayer and go, God, I've had a good day. I'm so lovable. Do you love me? And God says, yes, I love you. You're so lovable. And you have a bad day and you come to God. Oh, God, will you hear me? I'm not so lovable. Do you love me? You don't hear from heaven. No. He loves you, good or bad, left or right, up or down. Why? Because God, his very character is love. There isn't a time when God is not love. Not only is he love, number five, God is holy. He's holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we're told to be holy, for I am holy. God, he is holy. And he draws us. When you are coming here in a Bible study atmosphere, when you pray, when you fast, when you seek the Lord, you are drawing nearer to his holiness, shedding aside the weakness of your flesh and drawing near to God so he might draw near to us. Holiness is not some outward code of conduct. Holiness is God himself. There is no list of rules and regulations that make a person holy. God makes a person holy. Not only is he holy, but number six, he's also righteous. Who are we describing? God, the promise giver. He's righteous. A great way to remember what righteous is is simply right. God is right all the time. There's never a time when God is not right. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 15, it's said very matter-of-factly, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. There is no question. He is omniscient. He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's love and holy, he's righteous. And on that list can go. We can go on and on with the attributes of God. You see, God the promise giver not only says it, but he follows through with it 100%. God, he's alive and real in our lives. So what happens? There's this undermining of our faith. Well, we believe, you know, God, he's not all-powerful. He couldn't possibly come into situations where we are faced with limitations and we pass those limitations on to God. Well, I can't do this, so then probably God can't either. And it's an undermining of our faith. Or some people get trapped into thinking that God's really not omnipresent. And so they start living double lives. And they've got one life for this group of people. And they've got one life over here in the secret. And nobody knows because I've done a good job of fooling everybody. But listen, all that is is undermining your faith that God indeed is always everywhere. He's omnipresent. And he sees even the secrets of your heart today. You're not getting away with anything, guys. You haven't gotten away with it. He knows your heart. And this is the God that Abraham calls upon. This is the God that Abraham knows. It's so wonderful that you would have, and I would have a friend like this. But Abraham, when you see his faith, you, well, wait a minute. What about Abraham's part? 
He had a real relationship with God because he obeyed, right? No. Because he obeyed the law? No. Because he was circumcised? No. Back to Romans 4 now. Let's walk through some of these verses. Verse 13. He was made righteous because he believed. Because he trusted. Because he believed. Verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. As a matter of fact, it was 400 plus years before this, before the law came. But through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. It wasn't a legal arrangement that God made with Abraham. It wasn't a code of conduct. It was a simple word that he spoke, and Abraham believed it. God didn't come to Abraham and say, give him a list of rules and regulations to follow, and say, here, Abraham, this is the condition. This is what you need to do. I'm calling you out. This is what you need. So go ahead and follow this completely, 100%, and then this is how you'll be made righteous. He simply spoke, and Abraham believed. It wasn't even before he was circumcised, before any religious act on his part. And isn't that the drum that Paul has been beating in Romans? It's by faith. It's not by your works. It's not by your activity. It's not by your performance. The promise, the promise is sure because of God's grace. That's what it says in verse 16. And that's those key words in verse 16. That look at it. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So you mark grace. So that the promise, mark the promise, might be sure. Circle those words because they all work together. Grace, the promise, sure. The only way that we can have a sure promise from God is if it doesn't depend on our performance. Because if it depended upon our performance, then there would be times when we doubt the promises of God. So, well, God, I've done really good for you this week. I've really obeyed. I've kept everything. Now I know you're going to keep me. But what about when you don't? Then what happens to the promises of God? Well, if we have a bad theology, we're going to think that God's promises aren't sure. But if we have good theology and understand that God's promises don't depend upon your performance, then you'll know that even if you have a bad week, God hasn't stopped loving you. He hasn't ceased to be holy. He hasn't ceased to bless you. He hasn't, seen, he hasn't turned his back on you. And you have that freedom to obey him motivated by love. Abraham was saved before the law, before circumcision. He was saved by believing a promise. He was justified by believing God's promise, not by obeying God's law. Because still 400 years would happen. Now back to verse 16 or verse 14. He says, if those who are of the law are errors, then faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. We spent a lot of time just focusing in on the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was not to bring righteousness to a person, but to show a person, any person under the law, that righteousness could only come by faith. The law would always remind you that we failed that we need a righteousness apart from our own actions. And so if, if, if it's keeping of an external code of conduct that brings a person uh, to salvation, then, then faith is no longer accurate. It's just made void. But, verse 15, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Think about that for a second. Doesn't the law bring about wrath? You would really never, ever know that you were breaking the law unless red lights flash behind you on your way down I-25 as you're traveling 80 miles an hour. You never know, right? 
Because that's what happens. Think about it. Let's say that you get a brand new, flashy new car and you want to test it out, but unfortunately you're here in Denver and the speed limits are, you know, 55, 65, sometimes 70, 75, but you want to take this puppy up into the 90s. And so you wait till the middle of the night, nobody's on the road, you're going to go I-25 up to Cheyenne and just, boom, you're going to make it. You know you're going to make it. You're going to test it out. And as you're going by, you pass all these signs, you don't really know what they say, you're not looking at them, you're, oh, I'm on my way. And you're up there until, right, until lights start to flash behind you. And what happens? The law, the law is going to reveal your transgression, isn't he? He's going to pull you over. What's the matter, officer? I'm just driving. Yeah, buddy, you're driving too fast, and I'm the law, and I'm just going to reveal your transgression, okay? You know, and just next time you get pulled over, just open the scriptures and say, thank you for revealing my transgression. You're fulfilling, Roman. You can share the gospel with him. As he writes down your little ticket, he's going to hand it to you, and he's revealed your transgression. But let's just say, let's just say that same neat, flashy, neat car that goes so fast, let's say you were able to take it over to Germany and get onto the Autobahn. Do you know what? You'll probably never get pulled over. You know why? There is no speed law. So there's no sin to be revealed because there's no sin committed. Very important that we grasp this. You see, where the law is, it reveals transgression. When there's no law, there's no transgression. Put it this way, let's say that you love spending your afternoons down at the Denver City Park and you love it. You love walking around, looking at the flowers. It never crosses your mind, never crosses your mind to walk on the grass because you, you love the grass. It's beautiful. It's beautiful when it's green. No problem walking on the sidewalk except when they have a piece of grass marked off and it says, don't walk here. And something inside of you says, why can't I walk there? I pay taxes. <laughs> That's my grass. Who could tell me where I can walk? You were just fine. You were just fine walking around until you saw the sign that said don't. And when you saw the sign that said don't, inside you said, no way, I'm going to if I want to. Because the law reveals inside of you that natural bent to transgress. You don't care about benches in the park. You could care less. You don't want to touch them or sit on them unless they say don't touch wet paint. And you don't trust the sign. You've got to see it for yourself. And you see the guys in the park, they got white hands and they got the marks on their bottoms because they wanted to see if the sign was right. Why? Because the sign revealed transgression. But when there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, verse 16, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's by faith, guys. It's by his grace through faith so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That would be a powerful God. Our God is able to call to give life to the dead and call those things which do not exist as though they did. Do you know that is a lot of your prayer life? Seeking to see God do things that you don't yet see, but greatly desire as you pray and I pray according to his will. You see, the emphasis in the scriptures is not what I do for God, but what he has done for me. 
It doesn't mean that we don't do for God. We do. We love God. We serve him, motivated by love and joy and the assurance of our salvation, the security that we have in Jesus Christ. But a mistake happens when we start to emphasize what we do for God. And then we become very, well, I guess we could call it legalistic in our approach to God. And we minimize this omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful, everywhere at once, omniscient, all-knowing, all-love, all-holiness, all-righteousness, well, into a God of our own making. Hey, thanks for listening to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're going and growing through a study of Romans right now. You can hear this message again online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen through either of our apps. Search for Calvary Aurora in the App Store or Google Play. Maybe you're looking for a good book to go through as we begin a new year. Well, here in the month of January, we picked out an excellent one written by Warren Wiersbe. It ties in quite nicely to our current study, too. It's called On Being a Servant of God. Sometimes we lose sight of what ministry and service is all about as we get overwhelmed by the pressures and the needs that surround us. Be encouraged and strengthened by the wisdom that Warren Wiersbe shares in this easy-to-read book. We'll send you a copy when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. Just call and ask for On Being a Servant of God. Our number is 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Abounding Grace is made possible through the generous support of our listeners. And as we begin another year of delivering God's Word one verse at a time, we're looking to our listeners for help. Together, we can reach people with the love and truth of Christ and make a difference in these last days. To make a secure donation, drop by AboundingGraceRadio.com or call 877-30-GRACE. Next time on Abounding Grace, we'll continue Pastor Ed Taylor's study of Romans. Thank you for listening today, and we'll look for you tomorrow as we open the Word together in search of God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church Colorado here in Aurora.